Well, this morning we're continuing our sermon series through the book of Job. We've been going through, I should say, we've just really began going through the book of Job. We started last week and we're going to be here for the next 10 weeks looking at this Old Testament book. And this morning, I'm going to be teaching through the better part of chapters 1 and 2. And I was meeting with someone this week and mentioned kind of where we were going sermon-wise. And the person said to me, good luck. Um, he said that with a chuckle, but, but he knew, and I know, and, and perhaps many of you know, that going through Job 1 and 2 is a tall order. These passages are the passages when calamities fall upon Job like an avalanche. And not only that, but one modern author has pointed out that the book of Job is about 95% poetry, and there's only about 5% that's story or narrative. And so if, if that's true, we have about 4% of the 5% of story that's in the book. And so we, we have a tall order. Jason and I, as we preach, if you're visiting, you might not know Jason's down teaching a class right now, but as we preach, we try, may not feel like this, but we try meticulously to watch our sermon length, <laughs> uh, to, to, to kind of be the same thing every week. I'm going to let it go just a little bit longer and hopefully for reasons that will be obvious just as we get into this. Now normally, uh, we would read the whole passage. It's just too long to do that here at the start uh, and then pray. But, but what I want to do is read one verse and then pray. I'm actually going to read from one verse out of the New Testament. It's looking back on the person of Job. And it's drawing encouragement from the life of Job and what the Lord was doing in his life. And he written to a bunch of struggling Christians. And so I'd like to read this verse and then pray. It comes from James chapter 5. James 5.11, we read this. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard, says James, of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. James writes to those who have, quote, heard of the steadfastness of Job. Now, that may or may not be true for you. You may not have heard much about Job before, but in 30 or maybe 35 minutes from now, you will have. And it's my hope and my prayer that we will go to the same place that James is inviting us to go, namely to behold the mercy of and the compassion of the Lord. So let's pray now to that end. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, our lives are such that sometimes it is difficult when we look at the circumstances of our lives to see your mercy and compassion. Now that's not to say in other times it's not easy to see your mercy and compassion. But it is as well to acknowledge that we can't or we shouldn't fully be just be basing our estimation of your love and your compassion based on what we can see every moment of our lives. I guess, Lord, what I'm trying to pray is, is that 
for these next few moments, you would blow away whatever fogs of doubt or confusion would be in our minds and hearts about you. And through the eyes of faith, you would cause the, the rays of sunshine, the rays of your sovereignty and your goodness and your mercy and your compassion to shine into our hearts. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If we think about it like a movie scene or scenes from a movie, the first two chapters of Job have eight scenes. Scene one, scene two, scene three and four and so on and so forth. The first scene we could probably call a prologue. A prologue is the opening of something. Prologues are often short with compared to the whole. So, so some of you know, uh, I love the Tour de France. It's a cycling race. I love lots of cycling races, but the one that's famous is the one that takes place in July in, in France. And it often begins, although not always, with a f- stage they designate a prologue. It's a short stage compared to the whole race, but even just to the other races usually. It's not very long in length. And last week, Pastor Jason led us into the prologue of Job. It's scene one here, the first five verses. And we met this man, as he's called, from the land of Uz. (laughs) Very foreign-sounding land to us. But we saw the things that make his life so beautiful. But between that prologue, which I'll read in a moment, but between that prologue and scene one and then scene eight, a lot of things happen. In scene 8, Job is sitting with his three friends. But from scene 1 to scene 8, the bottom falls out in Job's life. Now, in these middle scenes, there's two cycles of really the same series of events. So scene 2, 3, and 4, and then 5, 6, and 7 are two cycles of the same thing. There's a conversation that takes place in heaven calamities that happen on earth, and then Job's confession. So, conversation, calamities, confession. Conversation, calamities, and confession. That is the opening seven scenes in the book of Job. Now, Jason already preached through the first five verses, so I'm not going to attempt to re-say all that he said and then say what I need to say about this passage. But I do want to reread that opening prologue one more time and just make a few more comments because what, what is set up in this opening five verses, they, they frame the central question of really the whole book, but especially these first three chapters, namely, this man from us, does he have integrity or not? So scene one. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 5. It'll be on the screen or you can use one of the Bibles in the pew or whatever Bible you brought with you if you brought one. Verses 1 through 5, it begins this way. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. That description's important because it's going to be repeated. Verse 2. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants. Of course, he must. He's going to have that much industry taking place. 
So that this man, it says, was the greatest of all the people of the east. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. The picture here, as Jason pointed out, is of a beautiful life. The passage says that Job is the greatest man in all the East. And with such a description of wealth, we would hardly contest that title. But Job's life is beautiful, not merely because it's a wealthy life or an abundant life, but, but primarily, mainly because it's a pious life. Job's life is a life lived unto God. It's not a perfect life. It's not a sinless life. That's not what blameless means here. But it does mean Job's devotion to God is authentic. You did notice his devotion, didn't you? What is Job's preeminent concern? His children have feasts and parties and they live downstream as recipients of Job's wealth and prosperity. And he looks out over the lives of his his children, those he loves, and and his main concern is God. That, That God would be preeminent in their lives. That God's majesty and honor and glory would be esteemed rightly in the lives of those he loves. That that God's glory and honor would not be belittled or cursed. At least that's what it seems. We're being set up for the central question here in the book. The thing that will be explored especially in these next six scenes. Is what seems to be true, true. Is who Job seems to be who he actually is. The passage says he has wealth, not from high-handed wickedness, as some people get wealth. And the passage seems to show that Job loves God for God's sake. But is what seems to be true, true. The word that the passage is going to use as we go on is integrity. So it's the word I'll try and use as well. Is there an integrity To who Job is on the outside with who he is on the inside. Nearly a dozen years ago there was a bridge in Minneapolis. Tragically along I-35 that looked sturdy and was sturdy it seemed. Until at rush hour it collapsed. In this last year there was a very prominent church in Chicago. A very large church that has seemed to do much and in fact has done much good in the world. And even their local community of course. But they've been in a storm because of the integrity of its founder. And its leadership. Is that what's going on here with this man from the land of Uz? The greatest of all the peoples of the east. Before I read the next scene, let me point out that these questions are not easy to answer when we point them back at us. Why do we love God? I mean, when the sun is shining on a beautiful fall day, why do we love God? Why do we follow Him? Do we love God because God gives us stuff, or do we love God because God is God? 
It's not always easy to tell in our own lives. It's difficult to know why deep down we do treasure God. Our hearts and our faith are complex. But when the suffering comes in Job's life, the answer gets more clear. Let's look at the next scene. Scene two, a conversation in heaven. Verses six through 12, follow along here as I read. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to his face, to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand, but only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Scene two is, as also is scene five, a conversation between God and Satan. Now there are several things about this that might strike our ears as as odd. I mean, just to mention one, it might be that Satan seems to come out of nowhere, right? I mean, I mean, like okay, Satan's there. What? Like what? It's sort of like Genesis three, where he just slithers into paradise without introduction. In Genesis three, he just seems to slither into this angelic council meeting here in verse six, which really is similar to the way he slithers into the wilderness temptations in the Gospels with Jesus. Scene two, it begins with the line, now there was a day. It just feels so ordinary, and yet there's nothing ordinary about it. And then how about Satan's non-answer answer? What you been up to, Satan? Ah, you know, same old, same old, to and fro. Feels odd. But let's focus our attention on the central question, which is Job's integrity. Now, perhaps we had our doubts about Job. The narrator called him blameless. The narrator said he was upright. The narrator said he fears God and he makes sacrifices for those he loves. But but does he? Is it true? What does God have to say? Well, God says it's true. Reading verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? This term of affection, my servant Job. That there is none like him in all the earth. A blameless and upright man, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. God and the narrator speak in unity. That's an important point to note here and for the rest of the book. Satan's not so convinced, at least he's willing to wager against it, that God is still wrong. It only seems that Job loves God for God's sake. Satan says to God, he doesn't love you. He loves stuff. Take away his stuff, he'll curse you. 
All that piety, all that devotion, they're not for you. So we turn to scene three, in which four rounds of unimaginable calamity cascade upon Job. Verses 13 through 19 in chapter one. Now there was a day when the sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, and there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabians, I don't know much about them, fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups. You know a little bit more about them, but not much. They formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine within their oldest brother's house, and behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people, and they are dead, and I alone have escaped to tell you. We don't know how much time elapses between scene two and three, between the conversation and the calamity. The one conversation scene fades into black, and the montage of calamity scenes fades into view. Now there was a day, the passage begins. What a day this was. I mean, first there's the army, then the lightning which not without meaning the passage calls the fire of God. Then comes another army. And with these, all the animals and all the servants are gone. I mean, we don't even live in a country where this type of invasion is possible. There was this missile scare thing near Hawaii at one point, not too long ago. Um, But this type of invasion, I mean, like... it can't happen here. It won't happen here. I live just two, two minutes from here. Um, and I'm never worried that Hummelstown's going to sweep in. <laughs> or Lingelstown or Hershey or Swatera or who. It's not going to happen. Now, there are a few members of our church from other places. And they've seen things like this. But generally speaking, we, we, we don't even know. We don't have categories for this. Not experientially. But the servants are gone, the animals are gone, and all that's left are a few messengers. And then comes this wind. It's a strange wind, even as it's described. It's said that the wind hits, quote, all four corners of the house at once, which is not, as we might say, natural. And with this unnatural wind, would we call it a supernatural wind? All of the children he so dearly loves are gone, There's an ice cream place just down the road that my family and I like to 
go to occasionally and in the spring and in the summer it seems like we found ourselves there often on a Thursday nights or at least Thursday nights for a few weeks in a row and there was this other family there a man and his wife and a couple children and uh he'd tease me about having so few kids and uh I kind of feel like having six kids is, is, is a lot. <laughs> I feel like I'm always tired. It feels like a lot. <laughs> uh, but he would tease me that, that that's not very much. And I'm like, bro, it's not a competition. Uh, <laughs> you know? Um, I won't say how many he had, but he had considerably more children than I have. Um, and so he's dishing it out, so I'm going to dish it out back. And I said, where, where, where's the rest of your kids? Uh, you know, too much to buy them all ice cream? You know? Uh, and, and he's checking out, and he looks me in the eyes, and he's like, well, actually, seven of them died in a fire a few years ago. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Unimaginable calamity, though. That's what, that, that's what Job is experiencing. And his friends are going to come later. They don't, they don't know what to say. In chapter 9, as Job says all sorts of things that he's going to say, at one point in chapter 9, he says that God won't let him catch his breath. And even as readers, when we read this scene, we feel that. The messengers come running up to Job, each barely able to wait as the messenger before him delivers, finishes delivering his news. And this passage in particular, in the book of Job, raises many questions. I'm persuaded, I don't know whether you think this is right or wrong, but, but I'm persuaded at least at this point we're better pressing forward and getting more of the story than rather than dropping back and just trying to raise all of the questions and then let alone try and even to answer them. The book of Job, after all, has 42 chapters. <laughs> and so whatever questions God does see fit to answer, and some he answers and some he doesn't, He seems pleased to do so slowly and over time and reflection. John Calvin, a famous preacher from the past 500 years ago, when he preached through this book, he gave it 159 sermons. (laughs) We're only going to give it 10, so we won't be three years in the book of Job. You're going to go tell your friends, come to my church, we've spent three years in the book of Job. Scene four, confession. Now when I say confession, I don't mean the confession of I'm sorry, right? That, that, that's a type of confession. What I mean by confession is what Christians have sometimes meant when we talk about confessions of faith. And scene four is a confession of Job's faith. And then we also have the divi- divine narrator's estimation or appraisal of that confession of faith. So, verse 20 and 21 and 22. Then Job rose and arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. A whole sermon could be preached just on that phrase and verse. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. 
Here we have Job's first words in the book. He'll have a lot more to say. He'll speak 522 verses before the book is done, which is exactly 50% of the book taken up with Job trying to process and make sense of these early events. But here in his first words, he doesn't say much. Or does he? His words are few in number, but his confession is profound. He says, the way he began his life, and the way all of us began our life, and the way I will end my life, and the way all of us will end our life, is this, naked. And when he does come, when the end does come, Job says that God is not less than God because what he gave, he took away. And it's this confession that he makes, and he makes it with tears and with shaved head and through grit and sorrow and pain. Now, how are we to feel about those words? I mean, he says them, but how are we to feel about them? Are we to believe that they're the right way to speak? Or at least the way we ought to be moving towards speaking, even as we go through our own calamities? What are we to make of these? The narrator seems to think this is, this is good. Job worshipped. He says in verse 22, In all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's significant. To say the Lord is involved in some way, shape, or form with giving and taking is not to charge God necessarily with wrong. Now to be sure, all the ways that the Lord is involved in giving and taking and all the ways that, all the purposes that the Lord has in giving and taking, that's mysterious to us. And there's a troubling aspect to this mystery. I understand that. I I don't want to minimize that concern. But as I said before, I don't mean this as an out. But I am persuaded that we're better if we press on rather than trying to stop and just answer all of these things right now. But before we press on, I would ask one question. Would the alternative be any better? I mean, would it be more satisfying to you intellectually and emotionally if God were not able to stop things? If most of the time he could defeat Satan, but not all of the time. Would it be better if God wanted to help you but couldn't? This view, which is not Job's view, not the Bible's view, not the view of this church, that would be a view that was very unsettling to me. So we press on. Scene five, we're back to conversations in heaven. Now I'm going to go much more quickly through these final scenes. Scenes five, six, and seven are a second cycle that assaults Job's integrity. Again, we have a conversation followed by a calamity, followed by a confession. Let's look at the conversation. Verses one through six in chapter two. Again, it begins, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? 
Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity. There's that word. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Now, Satan did have a reason. He's saying no good reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Should start to sound familiar, at least parts of it. Have you considered Job? Why, yes, I have, says Satan. But he doesn't love you. I think something very sinister is being implied here by Satan with the phrase skin for skin. Which shouldn't surprise us that something sinister is being implied by Satan. The New Testament calls him the accuser. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10. This phrase skin for skin seems to imply that what Job lost was to him nothing more than skin. It seems to imply that Job is still holding on to this faux piety so that he can somehow manipulate God into protecting his inside. So like, okay, I lost the outside prosperity, but yeah, skin. Just protect my inside so I'm going to do this faux piety thing and show devotion to God so that God will protect and prosper the inside, the, the health. Again, that's a sinister accusation. Here Satan is doubling down on his initial wager. That Job's integrity is, I'll use the word phrase, mercenary integrity. A mercenary is someone who does something, not because they necessarily want the thing that they do, but they want something else. They do something, they get hired to do something to get something else. That's a mercenary Job loves God to get stuff, is Satan's accusation. You take that away, he'll curse you. So God allows Satan to afflict Job. Mark that. God allows Satan to afflict Job. It's an important point. Satan wanted God to do it himself, do it directly, but God doesn't. And when God does allow it, he sets clear boundaries that Satan must prescribe to. That's an important point too. I mean it to be an encouraging one. Satan may be, as the New Testament calls him, a roaring lion. But that lion is on a choke collar. and God holds the leash firm. As with the other, this conversation now fades to black. And we fade into scene six where Satan inflicts Job with calamity. Verses 7, 8, and 9. Follow along with me. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. I include what is said here by Job's wife with the calamity because I think that's the right place to put it. 
Part of Job's suffering is that it's so alone. She tells him to curse God and die, which is the very thing that Satan wanted Job to do. I certainly won't be harsh with her, though. Might put it like this. She was just at a funeral service in a church where she sat on the front row with a minister up front who fumbled to speak words of comfort while on the stage behind him were ten coffins. And then they went to the graveside and she put her children in the ground. And seemingly before they even make it home, she can't hug her husband because he's head to toe covered with sores. With pain of such severity that the pain of scraping with broken pieces of pottery is better than the the pain of not scraping. I certainly won't be harsh with her. And that's one of the more beautiful aspects of Job's integrity here in these verses. He doesn't seem to be, at least rightly understood, harsh with her either. Come to the final scene, at least the final scene I'm going to cover. Scene 7, which is Job and the narrator's confession. Verse 10. But he said to her, You speak as of one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, three, three very specific things worth pointing out. They're little details, but they're not little. First, we're using the English Standard Version here at church. It's one of a handful of great versions of the Bible that you could buy at any store or grab online. We just, for a few reasons, happen to choose this one. But, but, but if you're reading one and you're holding one in your lap, there's a footnote on that word evil down at the bottom that says another way to translate it is disaster. I think that's actually the better phrase there. The word evil is used throughout the passage, and so it reuses the word, but it it uses it with a different meaning there. So it's not meaning evil from the Lord, it's meaning disaster, calamity. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10 is the exact same thing. It describes a disaster as though evil, and it's using a play on words, but I just think that's helpful to think about. What's going on there is disaster from the Lord, which feels evil-like, but it's not ascribing God to doing evil. That's important to note. The second thing to point out is that Job doesn't actually call her foolish at all. What, what, what he says is that the way she's currently acting is beneath the beauty of her character. He knows she's better than this. And he's longing for more for her. He's speaking so gracious to her. What a response. He loves her. And the third thing to note is that Job's confession, again, ascribes calamity he's experiencing to God. Now, the narrator, you know, I mean, we, we had that conversation. No, he's in your hand. No, he's in your hand. And Satan goes about doing his thing. And, and, and here, though, whether it's direct or indirect, Job seems to be ascribing the calamity to the Lord. Which the narrator again says he's not doing wrong when he does this. Again, to be sure, all the ways that the Lord is involved in giving good and disaster, and all the purposes of the Lord in giving good and disaster, that's mysterious to us. But there we have it. 
Job 1 and 2 and seven scenes. From great wealth to great poverty. I'd love to try to answer all your questions. <laughs> I, can't. I can't. I can't. I can't now. I can't maybe ever. But I do want to go back to where I began. I began by reading from James chapter 5. Let me reread that one more time. This New Testament verse. Written to a bunch of struggling Christians. James 5.11. He says this. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I I hope, I hope we can come to this place that Job invites us to. Namely, beholding the mercy and compassion of the Lord as we behold the steadfastness, or we might say the integrity of Job. But how? Like, how do we get there? How do we get to the mercy and compassion of the Lord through the book of Job? Probably many things are required to get us there. More time. Not just this morning, like life, like more time. More pressing into the Bible. More listening to the testimonies of people that have struggled significantly and seen at times the Lord's goodness in strange ways in that. More pressing into the story of Jesus and his suffering and the hope of the gospel that he lived and died and rose and sits in heaven and will come again. More and more and more and all of those things. I can't give you all of that now. But I'll try to give you the one thing that has helped me begin to see the goodness and the compassion of the Lord from these scenes in the book of Job. Because I think to get there, we have to have one question answered in our minds. And that's this. How does Job live like this? How? I mean, his integrity at this point in the book is impeccable. And he's going to say some things later, and he's going to have to repent of those, and we're going to, not eight more weeks, but, but at this point, he's impeccable. Without, without fault, the narrator says it, God says it, Satan acknowledges it. How? If the only way you are able to answer that question is by looking at Job, looking into his life and examining Job, putting Job under a microscope and saying, okay, how does Job become Job? And the only data I'm going to account for is what's within Job. You'll never see the mercy and compassion of the Lord. It's my proposal that Job is Job. Grieved but gracious towards his wife. Suffering but not swearing towards God. Not because Job is holding on to God. But because God is holding on to Job. We don't see this stated overtly in these verses. 
But it's certainly hinted at several places. I'll say the way that God prescribes exact boundaries. Satan, this far, no further. Satan, this far, no further. Implies that God is holding on to Job. And that's the story that's going to emerge from the rest of the book. And that's the story that emerges from the rest of the Bible. And it's the only story that's any good news to us. See, front and center in these verses, in these stories, these scenes, is the question of Job's integrity. Does he have it or not? But the real question is deeper than this. When the bottom falls out in our lives, we can be tempted to think that the bottom has fallen out in God. That God has no integrity. But when I look at the book of Job as a whole, even these opening chapters, what we begin to realize is that the When the bottom falls out in our lives, God is still God. When we're at the end of our rope, no strength, nothing. I mean, the end of our rope, we're holding that little nub of rope with the pinch, like the the fingernails we have, and they're scraping off the end of the rope, and we're just going to fall. The strength and sovereignty of God is not exhausted. I'd love to tell you a few stories from my own life about times I feel like I've been at the bottom and, and in fact through the bottom and, and, and God was God and, and I, I thought on Monday I might have time and then I'm like Thursday I'm like I don't have any time. <laughs> we got a few more weeks maybe I'll tell some stories later. But the conclusion of those stories is that I don't find a lot of encouragement that tomorrow I'll be Job and all the ways that we're supposed to be Job tomorrow if the bottom falls out when I look in the mirror. But when I look to God, to be God tomorrow, I find a lot of encouragement. I want to leave you with words from Jesus in the Gospel of John. In John chapter 10, even a passage that's discussing the purposes of the evil one and Jesus' goodness as the good shepherd towards his sheep, we read these verses. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Like, like mark this, this isn't know, knowing like I'm aware of. I'm aware of two plus two equals four. This is the knowing of affection. This is the knowing of love. This is the knowing of I see your pain. I see your struggles. I see your tears. I see your brokenness. I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life. And everything that's necessary to bring that about. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. If you're trusting Jesus as your Savior, you won't ever know all the reasons you suffer. I mean, I mean, just mark that. Job didn't have a clue these conversations were going on. But God loved him as he loves you. And when home and health collapse, whatever tempest befalls, know that God will hold you. I'm going to pray and invite the worship team to come back up and lead us in one more song. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, it is possible for the storms of life to gather with such venomance that it stirs doubts and worries and concerns of such proportions that we don't even know where to go. 
I, I don't know where all of my friends are at this morning. The, the, the joys and the sufferings. But, but what I pray is that for all of us, you would hold us. Whether the sun is shining or the clouds are dark, that, that we would see and know your fatherly love and care for your children. And that we would take great encouragement and insurance, not from looking in the mirror or looking at our circumstances per se, but from looking with the eyes of faith to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name.